Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, October 24th. Did you hear the story on Morning Edition this morning about California voting on a ballot question to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution? That's an example of direct democracy, right? Making policy not through our elected representatives, but by a vote of the people ourselves. Here in New York this fall, voters will decide on a $4 billion New York State Environmental Bond Act, whether to create a New York City racial equity office, and more. We know that the success of the abortion rights ballot question in Kansas, where the conservative state legislature would likely have enacted a harsh abortion ban after the Supreme Court let them do it this year in Kansas, the voters chose directly to protect abortion rights, and that act of direct democracy— That single act of direct democracy, which I'm sure you've heard about, has caused anti-abortion rights candidates all over the country to start revising their positions and pretending they haven't been as anti-abortion rights in the past as they actually have. The wave of states legalizing recreational marijuana sales started with several states that had ballot questions that bypassed the legislature and legalized cannabis directly. Remember that? That was a decade ago already. One interesting thing about direct democracy votes these days, they're kind of a flip from the past where it was the conservative movement that used it most aggressively and most successfully. For example, one that we've talked about a number of times on the show, in 2004, when George W. Bush was barely reelected president, one of the big reasons was that conservatives got anti-gay marriage questions, anti-gay marriage ballot questions for the state constitutions on the ballot in some key swing states, especially Ohio, that increased Republican turnout. And maybe the most famous or infamous ballot question of the last 50 years was California's Proposition 13, which limited property taxes, much to the detriment of education funding, which depends mostly on property taxes. So that's a little bit of the history. You know, there are pros and cons about doing these kinds of things at all. Should every populist passion be enacted into law by a direct vote when it's actually the job of the elected legislature to decide with their professional expertise and checks and balances whether it's really in the public interest? What about Brexit? Were you for that? Even as a way of the Brits determining whether to stay in the EU? Then again, with gerrymandering, and other knocks on how representative our representatives actually are, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's the purest form of democracy with no elected middleman to peddle their special interests. But here's the thing, and here's why we're including this topic in our series on democracy in peril right now. Now that liberal ballot questions have begun to dominate over conservative ones, The conservative movement is trying to change the rules. This hasn't gotten much coverage, but I've been reading a few articles about it and decided to include it in the series for that reason. They're trying to make it so that ballot questions in many states cannot win anymore with a simple majority trying to make it that they need 60% of the vote. It's like taking the Senate's filibuster rule and plopping it down on every referendum the people might want to vote on. So let's find out more with Zach Montalero. 
He covers politics in the states for Politico. His recent article on this is called Republicans Look to Restrict Ballot Measures Following a String of Progressive Wins. Zach, thanks so much for coming on. Welcome to w- welcome back, I should say, to WNYC. Thanks for having me back, Brian. You report that the big test cases that could set the template for this are on the ballot right now in Arizona and Nevada. What's happening in Arizona and Nevada? Yeah, so the, the biggest one is perhaps Arizona, uh, where there's a ballot initiative this year that would raise the threshold for future ballot initiatives. Right now, in, in many states, you need 50 percent to pass a ballot initiative at the at the at the ballot box. In Arizona, right now, there's a there's a initiative to try to make it harder in the future for certain initiatives to pass. Meaning, you need 60 percent, which is a really big. A uh, big, big barrier to clear, and the second one, second one is a similar one in, in Arkansas, um, which is similarly trying to set that threshold at sixty percent for any uh, ballot measure. So, oh, we'll I said Nevada. It's really Arkansas. Yeah. It's Arizona and Arkansas. My mistake. Right, and the, that that jump from fifty to sixty doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but you know, any in any state, you know, a sixty percent uh, majority is is a huge margin. So that would really close the path to a lot of uh, ballot initiatives in the future if they are to pass this this fall. And it's instantly ironic, I think. They're using a ballot measure to make it harder to enact ballot measures, and they only need 50% of the vote plus one to force future ballot measures to require 60%. Do I have those things right? Right, right. You know, it, it's interesting, too. Um, you know, there's some states already have that 60% threshold, Florida being perhaps the biggest one with constitutional amendments. Um, so it, it just shows how kind of tough it is to get there. And we've seen we've seen this push to 60 percent in other states really recently as well. Um, South Dakota tried. Uh, I'm sorry, North Dakota tried, um, at, you know, to do this after and it fell short over the summer. Uh, and in South Dakota, you know, voters rejected that move to 60 percent over the summer primary. Um, so states have been gradually trying to push it in this direction if they have that ballot initiative process in the first place. Not every state does do this ballot initiative process to, to, to generalize. As you go west, it becomes more prominent, and the, along the eastern seaboard, it's less prominent. Um, but the states that do have it, they're trying to make it tougher in, in many situations. How much is the Kansas abortion rights ballot measure, in particular, the impetus for conservatives to try to make ballot measures in general harder to pass right now? It's it's certainly part of it. And, you know, the potential push we'll see for abortion ballot measures or abortion related ballot measures um, is certainly part of it. But it, it definitely predates, you know, its most recent fight over over access to abortion rights in the country. Um, the interesting thing with Kansas is that the ballot initiative there was kind of the reverse. The Kansas ballot initiative was trying to codify restrictions to abortion rights or, or open up a pathway to codify restrictions at the very minimum. Uh, you know, it, what really kind of set this all off has been the last decade of kind of a string of good government and or progressive victories. You know, we've seen maybe the biggest driver uh, has been Medicaid expansion. Medicaid expansion, even in red states, has happened pretty regularly uh, through the ballot initiative process. And we've oh, you seen mean things that, like, that, that part of Obamacare that Republicans right, oppose right. to allow people with a higher income threshold to get their health insurance through Medicaid. And a lot of Red state governors blocked it, but you're saying Medicaid expansion succeeded by ballot questions in in some red states. Right, Medicaid expansion has been incredibly um, that's that's been one of the major ways to 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 expand Medicaid in those holdout states has been through a ballot initiative, 
and also independent redistricting laws, things around that as well, being a commission or a right to anti-gerrymandering, things like that. We've seen that in, in quite a few states. Um, that has been very popular with ballot initiatives as well, and that's kind of part of the core of the backlash to it. You quote an Arkansas legislator who sponsored um, this ballot question there to make ballot questions harder to pass as saying our state constitution should only be amended when there is genuine consensus among voters. And, you know, Arkansas happens to be one of the most, if not the most, restrictive state in the country on abortion rights since Roe was overturned in June. They have a complete ban even after rape and incest. Is there a relationship between these two things, the state of abortion rights there in particular and the movement to make ballot measures harder to pass, according to that lawmaker who sponsored this question? Yeah, well, a lot, again, a lot of these things like predate the abortion push, but it's kind of coming to a head with abortion law. You know, um, we're going to see a few ballot measures this year on abortion rights. Uh, Michigan is probably the biggest one, you know, after Kansas that we saw over the summer. So how this fall goes could you know, could really be an important barometer to to access to ballot measures. But it's not just access to abortion rights. It, it, it's kind of that last decade plus of various progressive policy wins for, for outside groups at the ballot initiative process that's kind of pushing people in that direction. We haven't seen too many uh, ballot measures on abortion rights really before this year with you know Nevada being the big outstanding, uh, the big exception to that. Um, that's going to change over the next few years. So that is all what's been happening with all these other progressive wins is kind of setting the groundwork and setting the rules of the uh, of the process, so to speak, that we'll see, you know, break out over the next two, four years where we will see a bunch of ballot uh, measures and constitutional amendments on their on abortion rights across the country. And and here's another aspect that I think haven't hasn't gotten a lot of publicity, but that I think is really interesting. Um, that representative named Ray from Arkansas, who's sponsoring this measure to make ballot measures harder, also decried out of state big money that comes in and tries to buy changes in state law through ballot measures. But I'm taking a wild guess that he doesn't oppose dark money coming in to support candidates like himself who run for elected office. And he probably supports the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling that considers big political spending a form of free speech. That's a wild guess. But do you know? I I don't know where uh, Representative Ray stands, you know, directly on Citizens United, but that's that's been the push and pull, right? Like broadly, and this is generalizing, but broadly, you know, conservative politicians and interest groups have supported um, looser campaign finance laws that have allowed for that dark money that you mentioned to kind of perforate the system. You know, at least speaking about federal elections, both Democrats and Republicans use dark money groups to great effect, but it's Republicans that have kind of pushed forward, you know, kind of pushed the boundary of election law to expand it in the first place. Um, but, you know, these these ballot initiatives do attract a lot of money from outside groups. Michigan's a good example. We're seeing a lot of money in the abortion one there from from national organizations. But also just looking at California, California has a lot of constitutional amendments that are always up, you know, but they're up on everything from online gambling on sports betting to dialysis processes. And both all of those have attracted tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. uh, to the process. These, these ballot initiatives are, 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 are attract a lot of money on things you may not think of initially as a hot button issue, like dialysis. It attracts tens of millions of dollars. Dialysis on the ballot in the state of California. And here's the punchline on Arkansas for me. It's that, um, as you report, 
the movement to restrict ballot measures uh, in that state comes partly because Republicans didn't like the fact that voters there passed a ballot measure a few years ago to raise the state minimum wage. And something tells me the big corporate money didn't want that one. Right. You know, there's been uh, basically progressive victories in a lot of these states you would think of as red, you know, raising the minimum wage. It's very popular. Um, Another one is is legalizing marijuana to, to some varying degrees from medical marijuana in some states to full on legalization in others. Um, That has certainly gone through some state legislatures, but where it's been very popular and where it's been getting support uh, has generally uh, been through these ballot processes that have kind of opened up marijuana legalization on a state by state basis. Um, So that attracts a lot of money as well. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we've got about five minutes left with Zach Montalero, who covers state politics around various states for Politico, part of our Democracy in Peril series that we're doing in our 30 Issues election series last week and this week, focusing today on something that hasn't gotten much coverage nationally, but Zach wrote a really good article on it on Politico about how Republicans are now trying to make it harder to enact ballot measures, that is, direct democracy, voters voting in things like Medicaid expansion, legal cannabis, raising the minimum wage, abortion rights, um, by adding things like a 60% threshold rather than 50% plus one to make ballot measures succeed. So we're looking at that aspect of democracy in peril for another five minutes or so. Zach, do you agree with my impression that ballot measures used to be more of a conservative or right-wing political tool? I mentioned California's legendary Proposition 13, limiting property taxes to the detriment of education funding, and the wave of same-sex marriage bans that um, were enacted that way in the early 2000s. Was it a right-wing movement that, like Dr. Frankenstein's creation, suddenly uh, is being used against the creators? Yeah, that's part of it. And, you know, depending on where you are in the country, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, I'm an East Coaster. We don't have a long history of ballot initiatives and ballot measures in our, you know, in our region, broadly speaking. But it, it, decade by decade, it really switches if you go out to the West Coast and the further you move west, some, some decades, it's, it's a tool of, you know, broadly conservative policies. And in some decades, you, it becomes tools, as we're seeing right now, of passing some, you know, liberal leaning policies in red states. It, it, it's in many states an opportunity for individual policies that may have broad support, but don't have support of the in party, uh, the party in power to kind of get that to pass. So I think we'll see it a lot, you know, We'll see. We'll see it a lot with with Medicaid expansion and things like that. But you know, one area that I think um, it could become popular with among you know Republicans, a conservative policy initiative is election law and, and specifically voter ID. Voter ID is something that's broadly popular um, with American voters. Poll after poll says a lot of voters say that some sort of ID should be presented at the poll. Um, it, that will never pass in a Democratic-controlled state. Democrats broadly think voter ID has discriminatory outcomes. Um, but we've seen some level of ballot initiatives passing with some voter ID laws kind of in place. Um, so it, it really depends issue by issue. The way, the way I always try to look at it is that, it, yes, we've seen a lot of recent liberal success with ballot measures. And in the past, we've seen a lot of conservative success. But ballot measures are kind of what gives voters the opportunity to put something directly uh, on the ballot, um, even if even if the party in power in that state, even if it's a single you know party controlled state, doesn't yeah. agree with that policy. Yeah, 
And we don't have national refer- referenda in this country, in case anybody's wondering. We don't even elect our president by a national popular vote. We use the questionable electoral college. But look what happened in the UK, where, you know, this probably highlights the pitfalls as well as the strengths of direct democracy, depending on what side you're on. That's how Brexit got passed, a national ballot measure. So I'm not sure that was a good thing compared to allowing the elected parliament to professionally debate it and be a kind of cooling saucer. But on the other hand, it was the will of the people. And so that debate goes on. But here's the last thing that I want to raise and maybe the most scary thing about this for me. I don't know if you've been following this, act, but part of the right wing movement in this country is to argue that the United States is not a democracy at all. It's a republic. The difference being that legislators, not the people, are supposed to have power in a republic. Utah Senator Mike Lee, conservative Republican, is a big proponent of this. And I think it's come up very vocally in the Arizona ballot measure debate we've been talking about. This right wing talking point that our country was not a democracy in the first place, that democracy per se is bad because it can go back and forth with the whim of the majority. And this even relates most frighteningly for me, to January 6th and the big lie because the MAGA movement is trying to make it that state legislatures, not the electoral majority, have the final say who gets a state's electoral votes for president. Uh, Example, here's an NBC story from August. The headline is, Arizona Republicans are making a case against the idea of democracy itself. And there was a New York Times Magazine article on that too, And um, I see that uh, the Washington Post has a story just this weekend on potential election chaos being planned by Republicans in Nevada. It says the state legislature could step in and throw out the results in any contested state election from assembly up to governor and install the candidate of of their choice, something that is allowed under Nevada law. So if elections themselves are like ballot measures, voted on by the people. Apparently, Nevada Republicans may try to make that state part of the Republic-not-a-democracy Republic movement coming, coming right up. And, and we're almost out of time, but I know you're familiar with the Supreme Court case in this area, right? Yeah, so you know, broadly, there's a Supreme Court case, Morvey Harper, that's going to be heard in December. And at the core of that case is who can set election policy. Um, that case to effect argues that really only the state legislatures in Congress can, and that would remove the role of many courts, of state courts in the process. So we're, we're at a time right now that how election laws are set could, you know, could be very dramatic, you know, six months from now, very dramatically differently six months from now than it is right now. It's, it's, it's one of the biggest cases, I think, that we've heard, that the Supreme Court rather has heard on elections in, in quite some time. I agree. And we'll be watching Nevada as well to see if it becomes post-election day dystopia uh, in, in a way that January 6th sort of implied. All right, Zach Montalero, state politics reporter for Politico. Thanks for the great article on this. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.